My name is Ellis Palmer and welcome to this very special WFI EPO Weekly Edition where we're going to be talking about the toffees with Paul the Esk. How are you, Paul? I'm very good, thank you. It's a beautiful spring day in London. I'm sad that the season's coming to an end, but uh, yep, all good. Indeed, as we all are. So how has the season been for you so far, Paul? You know, it's been a very strange one. I think in totality, it's uh, delivered more than uh, we could reasonably have expected. Uh, but I think we can probably break it down into three distinct parts. The very beginning of the season, the first five games of the season, we won four and drew uh, one. We were undefeated. But um, it sort of gave us a false position. I think we were at, by the end of September, we were second in, in the league. Um, but we, even though we'd won four, drawn one, we hadn't played particularly well in any any of those games. And I think that was obviously a reflection of uh, Komen just coming into the team, but also some of the comments that he made himself about the team when he arrived. The fact that, in his opinion, we were only 70% fit at the beginning of the season. Um, so anyway, we got off to a great start. Uh, we then sort of went into the second phase of the season after the first international break, where in the next 10 games, we only won one. We uh, drew four and lost five. And that really... I suppose has come back to to bite us at the end, you know at the end of the season in terms of where we where we eventually finish. Um, we we played poorly throughout that season, uh, throughout that part of the season. Sorry, and it wasn't really until mid December where we started to look anything like a team that you would associate with Coman. You know there, there was a Coman uh, as most people know obviously likes to play a high pressing game. Um, and we just didn't do that. We, I, th- I think the three years that we'd spent with Martinez, uh, had sort of just driven that completely out of, out of the team. So the, it took sort of almost the, f- the first half of the season, sort of certainly 15 or 16 games before we started playing, um, anything like, uh, Coleman would like and starting to produce the results that he wanted. The second half of the season, of course, since, um, since January, well, actually since the, uh, the the unlucky defeat to Liverpool in the the Goodison derby on December the nineteenth. Since then, you know, we've just played better and better as, as the season's got on, and we've lost uh, two games, which sadly, you know, would have been much better had we not done so. Spurs away, and and, and Liverpool away with two very very poor performances. Um, but other than that, most most of the games we've played since, and certainly the games that we've played at Goodison, where we have. Uh, nine successive um, home victories and Lukaku scored in each of those nine games has, has been great stuff. And as I said right at the beginning, I think over and beyond where we might have expected to have been at the end of um, Coleman's first season. So what were your expectations going into this season? I think, I, I personally, I think if, if we finished seventh or eighth, I, I, I would have been happy with that. Um, I didn't expect seventh necessarily to get European qualification, but it seems that that's going to be the case now with Leicester having uh, dropped out of the Champions League. So seventh or eighth would have been uh, reasonable, but not not the expectation of European qualification. Now, now we've got that, that that that's over and beyond. And I think I still think there's a chance that we may end up fifth or sixth. Um, obviously, time's running out, and we have played more games than. Uh, our competitors, but uh, if we can maintain this form to the end of the season, uh, there's no reason why we can't finish fifth or sixth. And how have your expectations evolved during the season? That's a, that's a very good question. I think uh, we were slightly uncertain in the beginning of the season in terms of what what would actually happen, but as the seasons evolved, those expectations have started to rise. I think um, I think the uh, the purchase of uh, Schneiderlin in um, in January helped those expectations. Uh, certainly he's been, I think, the key component to the change in form from before uh, January to after January. Um, and obviously with uh, Lukaku's am- amazing um, performance throughout the season, particularly in the second half of the season, those expectations have just risen and risen. There's a slight frustration that had had we performed slightly better in the first half of the season and had we got points from the Spurs game and the Liverpool game, we'd have clearly been in a, in a better position. And I think you know the feeling might be at the end of the season that, yes, we've done better than expectations, but actually we might have done just a little bit better and we may just have broken into Champions League qualification if it hadn't been for that poor start or poor second part of the first half of the season. And what for you has been the main difference between Roberto Martinez and Ronald Koeman? Uh, Defence. 
<laughs> in, in, in a word, defence. I mean, um, Martinez when he when he arrived the first season, uh, we got six, seventy two points, um, and we finished fifth, just outside of uh, Champions League qualification. But that was really built on the back of the work that Moyes had done previously and the discipline that Moyes had instilled in the team shape and and, and defence. And excuse me, that unwound completely. In the second and third season, so you know the the end the end of last season, we were a shambles on the pitch. You know, the, the, there was there was no shape, there was no discipline, there was it seemed that there was no there could be no training in terms of defence. You know, we did very well, um, and we've done well for the last two or three years in terms of scoring goals, but each year as throughout the Martinez period. Um, you know, we, we were conceding more and more goals each season as the, the Moyes influence left and as Martinez's approach, um, you know, took hold of the club. So that's the single biggest um, change between the Martinez era and the Komen era. I, I think the second area is uh, the fitness of the players. Um, as I said earlier, Komen mentioned that himself when he arrived. And it was it was very evident towards the end of last season that sort of in the last sort of 15, 20 minutes of most games, uh, the Everton teams were less fit than our opposition. The reverse is now uh, particularly true. And I think that's demonstrated by the number of goals that we've scored in the, in the last 10 minutes of, of games as, as the season progressed. So now our fitness levels are, are much higher. and We can remain competitive for much longer in the game. They're the two big changes. I don't disagree with you there, but on the fitness thing, I do have to throw up a point. I think yeah. that to re- defend Roberto Martinez a little bit, because he's a guy who I know quite well, Yeah. I think Everton's team last season was a little bit old and a little bit, you know, past its best at times. They were bringing through young players, but some of those young players just weren't ready for the first team. Now I'm under Ronald Koeman, they've got Rocky, they've brought in some top, top young players this season, you know, Tom Davis has come into the team. They've signed a Moa Ruckman from um, Charlton. They brought in yep. Calvert Lewis from the youth team. And I think in terms of Everton's development, I think they're in a much better place than they were under Martinez. Whereas one of the things Roberto, I think, had to do, had to do last season, struggled to do at times, was get rid of some of the older players. Whereas this season, some of those older players are playing less and less minutes, have been injured, whatever. And that's given Koeman a bit of a chance to bring in the young players and give the young players a bit of a chance. And in doing so, has revitalised Everton's team. There's no doubt that we're obviously a, a younger team this season. I, I think, um, I'm not necessarily you know, having having a dig at, at Martinez. I, I think the other element was that there was uh, definitely a feeling towards the end of last season, uh, certainly the FA Cup semi-final, that the team had stopped playing for him. In that situation, who do you blame? Do you blame the manager or do you blame the players or do you blame both? Uh, both sets and I think you probably should blame blame both but um, there was certainly evidence towards the end of the season anybody that watched Everton on a regular basis could see that players were not performing at their optimum levels and so I suspect that there's an element of that as well it's also I, I, I guess you could also say Coman is not the type of manager where you're going to last in the team long if you're not playing for him indeed I don't disagree with I think one of Koeman's wonders of the club and he's a manager who for me Traditionally, he gets better in his second and third season at the club. He did yep. very well at Valencia, although there's always political issues at that club. He did very, very well at Southampton. That's great to see. And I genuinely think he could do similarly well with Everton, don't you? Yes, and I think you know it's very clear from what he said at the beginning of the season, what when he when he first arrived in the summer, that he views this as a three-year project. He has a three-year contract. In typical Coleman style, he doesn't say what's going to happen after the end of the three years. And I suspect he probably views that we're just slightly ahead of schedule in terms of the fact that, you know, we've now pretty much secured uh, European qualification for next year, which is obviously going to assist him in the uh, recruitment process throughout the summer. Now, where do you think the finality of that three-year project is? I think next year has to be uh, Champions League qualification. So in the third year of his... um, in management, he would expect Everton to be uh, in the Champions League. So, I mean, you talk about Champions League there, and one about I want to touch on one of those Champions League quality players now, Lukaku. I mean, he's somebody I've been watching for the last seven or eight years, ever since he signed from Anderlecht for Chelsea. 
And he's a player I think's really developed. He's a player who I've always appreciated because he's one of those players who can bring the ball in from a ring, cross it in, you know he's going to be there. But he's also a player who can who can run, who can create chances with the ball, who's got a multifaceted approach. And wow, just what a player he's been this season. 24 goals, the top scorer in the league. And, you know, part of me thinks that if he was at a more fashionable, say, London club at Tottenham or Manchester City or somewhere like that, they're big boys, they're really big boys. The Real Madrid's, the Barcelona's, the Paris Saint-Germain's would be sniffing around him. I'm not sure that they're not sniffing around him. Uh, the fact that he's at Everton and has scored 24 goals in an unfashionable team. Um, not that Evertonians necessarily consider ourselves to be unfashionable. But I think I think the fact that he, he's... What, what, what I mean is, is I think he's seriously underrated because of his talent. And I think he's, he's underrated because Everton are not an unfashionable team per se, but I think they are certainly less fashionable than the, the so, so-called big six, the big six yes. English yeah. clubs, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, and, and, and but I think that's the point, isn't it? That the fact that he's managed to score 24 goals in the Premier League, 25 goals in total uh, over the season for the team for a team that's currently in seventh place is, is a remarkable achievement. And in that, you know, uh, 20, of those 24 goals, 23 goals have come from open play. He scored one direct free kick. He hasn't scored any penalties at all. And that that's a remarkable record. If um, I'm, not, I'm not a great one for looking at the statistics, but if you look at the uh, the conversion of uh, chances to goals, uh, he's you know he stands out a mile. Uh, he's, his 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 ability to t- take chances when they're presented to him is immense, and I've I've never understood the you know the various criticisms that have been made of you know what is still a very young player. Criticisms that he doesn't run enough. Criticisms that he can't hold the ball up. Criticisms that he doesn't have close ball control. I just think that's absolute nonsense. He's he's in his team to score goals, and yes, you could argue that a team would play better if he did other things. But then you're taking taking away his, you know, the main objective and goals. At the end of the day, I'm very simple in simple terms. Goals win matches, and I, I just think he's he's invaluable to us. And I'm sure if he went somewhere else, he would score many more goals than the goals he scored for Everton. But I'm not necessarily expecting to expecting him to leave at the end of the end of this season. Um, you know, it, it, it's been well commented on that he won't sign a new contract, and therefore. The suggestion is that he's going to leave. Well, he's got two years left on his existing contract. And I think the club are taking a very firm stance on this and saying, look, you're contracted to us. You're going to just stay another year. And if the situation is still the same in 12 months time where we can't meet your uh, ambitions as a player, then you can move on. And in fact, you know, quite clearly that would happen because then he would only have one year left in his contract. Um, Excuse me, but I think he's absolutely invaluable to us. What is all this for the casual observer? What is all this about Lukaku not signing his contract? What is all that about? Is it just internal politics that he wants more money? Or is it just that Everton wants to tie him down so they can get a bigger transfer fee eventually for him when he potentially does leave the club? Everton have a policy, first of all, of not um, putting uh, release, release clauses into contracts. So uh, I, I think Fellaini was the last Everton, Everton player to have a release con- uh, clause in his contract. Um, for Lukaku not to sign the contract that's been offered to him is going to cost, depending upon which figures you believe, is cost him personally sort of anywhere between three and five million pound in the next year. Um, but what it would do if he did sign the contract is that he, it would leave him in a position where uh, he has no leverage at the end of next season if he did want to leave. So I suspect that he's going to stay at the club, uh, but he won't sign a new contract. So he, he he will stay on the existing deal, which I think is something in the order of around £70,000 a week, as against the uh, the deal that's been offered to him, which is rumoured to be around £140,000, um, Because by signing that contract, He's then entered into a, probably a new four-year contract, so he would have no leverage at the end of next season. Whereas, obviously, if he keeps his, and maintains his existing contract with only one year to go, Everton would have to uh, move him on because they couldn't see him going through uh, to a free in the following year. 
What sort of clubs can you see coming in for him? I've always said that I thought Rukaku could go to a, a big, big European club. I've said it from three or four years ago. Yep. I've always said I thought he would be somebody who could go to, a, who'd be perfect at Real Madrid, playing at number nine position in the hole. I think would be better than Karim Benzema in many ways in that position. Or he's somebody who I think could potentially do really, really well at another big European club. But what sort of club do you see him going to? Do you think going to a domestic club or somebody international? I, to be honest, Alice, I've, I've never, I've never really given it much thought because I've always maintained that he would remain at least until next, at the end of next season, uh, an Everton um, player. He has, uh, I believe, uh, said that he wishes to stay in the Premier League. That being the case, it's probably only Chelsea that he that he would go to. But uh, as I say, I've not given it much consideration because I'm I'm firmly of the opinion that he's going to stay. So, you know, we'll see him playing in the Royal Blue of Everton next season. We're going to take a short break now, and then we're going to be back to talk about Ross Barkley, Everton's new stadium, and the change of ownership. I just thought I'd take a quick break here to tell you all about the other podcasts that World Football Index has available. That's Football Grad on Russian football, Dagan Pressing on the Bundesliga, the Champions League podcast, the Sand of the Liga on Guess What La Liga, and the Serie A sit-down focusing on the Italian game. WFI is also global. We've got great coverage in the Americas too. The South American football podcast and Don't Call It Soccer on the MLS and the Liga MX are great listens. The Copa Libertadores podcast is also well worth checking out. If you're one for nostalgia, we've got a monthly World Cup series taking you up to Russia 2018 and the 11 Pieces of Me podcast where football fans and journalists construct their favourite all-time 11. Last but not least, the tactics part with Stevie Greve is our most popular part of the week. Discover the variety of high-quality analysis we've got at World Football Index by checking out our feeds on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your podcast of choice today. Welcome back. I'm Ellis Palmer, and I'm doing a special edition of the WFI EPL Weekly Podcast with Paul V. Esk, where we talk about the wonderful Everton so, so far we've talked about how the season's been, the difference between Martinez and Kuman and Lukaku. Now we're going to move on to somebody who's been in the news, who I think is a top, top class central midfielder, but he's, he's had his issues recently, really, hasn't he? Russ Barkley. I mean, Russ Barkley's been in the team for quite a while at Everton now. I think he came into the team at 17, 18. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Paul. Yeah, that's right. Yep. But he's somebody who's who's had periods of great, great, you know, success, and people have been talking about him as a, a really high quality player. I mean, he's had times where he's been a little bit off the radar. So, how do you judge for Ross Barkley of 2016, 2017? I, I think it's been a really uh, difficult season for him, but I think in recent months, uh, in in line with Everton's general improvements in, in, in form, uh, he's he's he started to come through and. Um, th- there's no doubt he's developed as a player, even though he's had a you know particularly difficult first sort of two thirds of the season. I think I think probably you know there's been a huge amount of work with him off the pitch um, on 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 the training ground. I, you can see elements of his game that have improved and and changed enormously. And I think probably the biggest difference between Ross Barkley at the beginning middle of the season and now. Is that the role that he's been given, uh, this sort of free role where he can sort of, you know, operate pretty much anywhere, um, in a sort of very free, uh, midfield of three, advanced midfield of three with Lukaku ahead of him. I, th- I think that's given him the opportunity just to, just to play the game as he, as he sees fit rather than in some, for- some form of disciplined, you know, sort of, if we had a more a more rigid structure for him to play in, I think I don't think he's necessarily has the the discipline as a player uh, to play in some form of rigid structure. I think I think he's as in a sense almost a, a luxury player in the sense that you have to play around him. You have to give him. It was very very interesting the, the game against Burnley at the weekend um, in terms of his defensive responsibilities. He headed two off the line, 
and he also made a couple of very vital uh, interceptions from um, from from corners. I've never seen that part of Ross Barkley's game before, and to me, it just suggests that he's he's now becoming more more settled in the team. That under the work that Coleman's done, and with this sort of free role in an attacking sense, this in a sense is far less for him to think about, and and that's not, that's not a reflection uh, of his uh, footballing abilities or uh, the so-called football brain. I just think it gives him the freedom to do what he's actually very good at, which is you get the ball and he, he when he starts driving forward. I don't think there's many players in the English game at the moment uh, with the abilities that he has. So obviously it's been an up and down season, but I think I think we're seeing the best of him. And I think going into next year, particularly if you know if, if we make additions around him, uh, we're going we're going to see the Ross Barkley that perhaps two or three years ago we thought we might see. So how has Ross Barkley evolved over time? Because when he came in, he was a very, very young, very raw player. How has he evolved? How has he changed? How has he stagnated slash improved? I think oh, it's a good question. I think the difficulty, the difficulties that he had, certainly towards the back end of uh, Martinez's uh, reign and the beginning of Coleman's, was that nobody was quite sure where where best to play him. Do, do you do you play him as a as a sort of as a defensive midfielder, or do or do you play him in a, in, a, in a more advanced role? And I think as a, the point I made a few few minutes ago, in terms of the discipline the discipline that's required for that rigid role, I don't think he possesses that. And I think when he's had to do those types of things, he's not performed well. I suspect the other point is that he's a player that needs options in front of him, and quite often, certainly last year and um, at the beginning of this season. He would be playing with uh, he'd be playing with Lukaku uh, in, in, in an isolated single role ahead of him, ahead of him, and I think what the difference that we've seen towards the back end of this season is with playing this sort of very loose three uh, just behind Lukaku, where you've had Tom Davis driving forward, where you've had Morales when Morales has played playing so just behind Lukaku it's actually given Barkley many more options so you know there's a tendency I think a lot of people say there's a tendency with Barkley he sort of puts his head down and he, and he, he just goes he doesn't tend to look up but at least with um, more options ahead of him he becomes a much more effective player. And you mentioned Tom Davis there tell me yeah. a little bit about Tom Davis where's Tom Davis come from because I thought he was from my side of the water everything I can find says he's from Liverpool. <laughs> He's he's from Liverpool, and uh, what often is um, said incorrectly was is that Alan Whittle was his um, his uncle. Alan Whittle actually is his is his great uncle. So uh, Tom's father, who um, was a decent footballer himself, he didn't he, he didn't play league football, but uh, or professional football, but he he was a very good footballer himself. Tom's father, uh, his uncle was Alan Whittle, the the guy that played for Everton in the sixty nine seventy uh, championship winning side. Um, but no, he's 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 definitely a scouser uh, through and through, and it's been remarkable, hasn't it, he, for such a for such a young boy, seventeen years old, to have the effect on um, the team that he's had, and to be able to maintain his form for so long throughout the second half of the season, uh, it, it, it is incredible, and I think um, long long may it continue, and if his development continues at this rate. Um, what, what, what a player we're going to have. Uh, probably, it's, it's 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 wrong to say this because of his age, but you know we're looking at a sort of you know another Alan Ball type figure with his with his energy and with his drive and with his passion. You know his performance against Manchester City and the goal that he scored against Manchester City. That shows what, what you know what a tremendous player or tremendous potential we have um, with him. Indeed, indeed, and I think Everton have brought in some top young players this season. You know, Mo Luckman from Charlton, they brought through Calvert Lewis from the Academy. They uh, brought in Mason Holgate a couple of seasons ago from Barnsley, but he's really made his impact on the first team this season. And you know, it's it's great to see really, don't you think? It is, and it's funny, isn't it? Because a lot of people have said that Coleman doesn't trust youth. Well well, I think I think that one's been firmly nailed. Um he does, and I think uh, you know it's to his great credit. It's also, I think, to the great credit of the club itself and the structure that we have in place. Um, you know, for a number of years, it's been said that Everton has a great academy, and we're now beginning to see um, the the results of that. The the under twenty three team have performed 
uh, fantastically this this year and you know and i think probably next week we'll win the uh, premier league two championship for the under 23s so it seems that there's a structure within the club that takes or you know finds young talent and then develops it develops that young talent to the point where either they're going to be good enough for everton or perhaps will be sold on to either you know lesser teams or to championship teams i think this is also an important part of the everton business model moving forward um, at least certainly until the time when we, when we get a new stadium, we're going to have to trade players, not necessarily our star players, our uh, Lukaku's or, or, or our Barclays, but we are going to have to move players which we developed from the academy in the under-23 team and use those as profit centres in their own right. Which it will be incredible to see. I think really a testament to the way Everton have you know looked to the long term with bringing through young players and also the investment that's been made in Everton's training structure and academy structure, don't you think, over the years? Totally. And, and you know, I think I think that's one of the reasons uh, why, why Steve Walsh was brought in. Steve Walsh is obviously known for going out and finding un, unknown talent and bringing that talent through very quickly into, into the first team, which is what he did with Leicester. And you could argue that's what he's done with, with Garner Gate at, at, at Everton. But I think also his other role is to develop a system develop a system which puts a structure in place at the club so that the club itself can can do one of two things as i say it can bring through talent and if that talent's good enough that talent then can compete with the types of players everton hope to attract but even if that talent's not quite at that level we can then move those players on and as a as a means of generating uh, income which is going to be needed from a regulatory point of view uh, as I say, until we get the new stadium. Indeed. Now, let's talk about the new stadium. Let's talk about where those, where that fresh young talent we've spoken about could be playing a couple of seasons. Now, everything the new stadium, I'm from the River of Virginia, which if you don't know Merseyside very well, and this is a global podcast, I imagine some of our listeners won't. The River is just across the water from Liverpool, and it's pretty much split between Liverpool fans and Everton fans. So, Everton's a club I know very well, and I've had a lot of friends growing up who are Everton fans. You know, there's always been this permanent question of Everton, or we need a new stadium, or we need to upgrade Goodison, or we need to do whatever. And Goodison's a great stadium. I love going there. You know, it's a really nice stadium, really proper, old-fashioned stadium with a great atmosphere. But you go there, and the facilities are sorely lacking, don't you think? Totally, and it's it's been a case obviously for for twenty years, and that's a reflection of the of the lack of capital and the lack of investment that was available within the club under under the previous ownership. The club for twenty years has existed on a hand to mouth existence. Um, we have, you know, if, if you look at the state of the of the club's balance sheet when Mashiri took the club over, um, we were tied with long term debt, and we had. You know, a fairly large amount of short-term debt as well. The idea being, obviously, to, to use that debt as a means of um, seeing us through to perhaps European qualification and, and higher revenues. But the sad fact was that with um, with only having Goodison, having a limited capacity, very small number of uh, executive seating uh, facilities at Goodison, you know, we, we were never ever going to increase our non-broadcasting revenues. Uh, to the point where we could actually uh, attract people and spend that money on wages. On, on wages. So the, state, the stadium is is extremely important for, for for many many reasons. One is obviously the increase in in revenue that it will bring by virtue of being a you know a larger stadium. Secondly, by virtue of the uh, number of executive seats that will will be there. And, and I think that it's very important that the business model that Everton. Have, de- have deployed over the years at, at Goodison is to make Goodison as, as affordable as possible. And I think the board, you know, I'm, I'm quite a knocker of the board and I think the board should be congratulated for that. And I hope that that continues when we move to the new stadium. The business model is very interesting. If you get, if you get the, the pricing right, you can end up in a situation where I think we will end up where perhaps 10% of the capacity of the stadium generates 50% of the revenues. And that's obviously uh, looking at executive seating. So the thoughts are that we're going to end up with a stadium so around the 58,000 capacity figure. 
Um, if we have five and a half to six thousand uh, executive seats and we can sell those, that will generate half of the income that the stadium itself generates. So that means that we can continue the concessionary pricing uh, that we've done at Goodison so successfully for many years. Not only that, new stadium presents new opportunities to bring players in. And I think I think that actually does help the fact that you're saying, look, this is the investment that's going into the club. Um, these are the sponsors that we're attracting because obviously a new stadium is going to have naming rights attached to it. Um, it, it, it all gives the impression rightly uh, to people looking at the club from the outside, those not necessarily familiar with Everton, uh, that this is a club that's progressive and going places. Indeed. I mean, the stadium topic has been on the cards for many, many years. I mean, originally, Everton Stadium was supposed to be on King's Dock, which is where the Echo Arena is now. And that was discussed around, what, I want to say 20, 15, 20 years ago now. But that was decided to not be financially viable at the time, I think. I remember talked about expanding Goodison, but because of the age of Goodison and because of the area where Goodison is, it's quite a working class area. There's a lot of terraced houses nearby. They weren't able to do that. I mean, obviously, Kirby, they were supposed to be um, buying land in Kirby, weren't they, to um, build a stadium there. Talk us through the various options that have been available to Everton over the years, Paul. Okay, I mean, in, in, in terms of a timeline, uh, King's Dock uh, would have been a fantastic um, solution to us. Uh, at the time, we couldn't raise the 30, I mean, it sounds ridiculous today, but we couldn't raise the 30 million that was um, required uh, in order to make that work. And it would have worked had we done so. There was the, actually, I say we couldn't raise that money. There was the opportunity to raise that money, but the, the shareholders at the time, Bill Kenwright in particular, decided not to take the offer from Paul Gregg, who was uh, a director of the company at the time. Uh, he subsequently left the, left the, com- left the company after that. So King's Dock was certainly an opportunity missed and it would have advanced us greatly had we been able to do that at the time. I think if you look at the other options, if you look at the options, certainly, um, thank goodness, uh, Kirby would have been a disaster for the club. Uh, the club would have left the city. Uh, Kirby, for those who are not familiar, is uh, several miles, you know, a small town, uh, several miles out, outside of, of the city itself. The stadium that was proposed was not a stadium that would have been, certainly wouldn't have competed with any of the stadiums, you know, the likes of Tottenham Stadium that's being built now. Um, it was a sort of a cheap, poor quality option. And the problem, as I mentioned earlier, is that Everton have never had the capital available to them in order to make a proper uh, stadium work. Um, even the redevelopment of Goodison was was not financially possible. It probably there's an argument that it was architecturally possible, but. Um, Without the capital, we just couldn't do it. And the thing that Mashiri has done since he's come in, uh, the moment that he arrived, big change was cleaning up the balance sheet of Everton Football Club. So he paid off the long-term debt and he paid off the short-term debt. And that in itself, just that sing- single act has been the enabler that's allowed Everton to talk to Peel, who are the owners of the land that the new stadium is going to, is, or where the owners of the land of the, where the new stadium is going to be built. The city council and Everton for years have spoken about various options. Walton Hall Park was another, another option that was often muted. Um, but neither partner until Mashiri came along. Um, had any money to do what they were asked ask, or thinking of doing. So it was a question of two people standing, sitting in a bar wanting to buy a drink, but neither of them having uh, any money to buy the next round. Mashiri uh, has, has changed that. And uh, the moment that Mashiri arrived, the fact that he could bring funding and bring um, affordable finance to the club Change the relationship between Everton Football Club, the City Council, and Peel Holdings, who, who who were the landowners. Tell me a little bit about Bramley Dock and where Bramley Dock is going to be in the city for our fans who may not necessarily know Liverpool that well. Okay, sure. I mean, Bram, Bramley Moor Dock is uh, at the north end of a, a development area that's known as Liverpool Waters, and that stretches from just north of the Pier Head, if people know the Pier Head, um, up into 
what used to be obviously major industrial docks, but you know, for many, many years, just been a wasteland. Uh, there's been you know, the odd developments and small businesses have used some of the various facilities that are there. But it's not been – it sat on Peel's books for many, many years, and they've look, been looking for many years for an anchor tenant to come in that could start the development. So in terms of uh, logistics, it's about a mile, a mile and a half from the city center. There's talk that we may be able to use uh, existing railway lines, and then perhaps a new uh, railway station will be built very close to the dock, which will assist, obviously – uh, the movement of fans in and out. Uh, there is some work that's required on um, on the roads uh, to give uh, proper access in and out, but uh, I believe the City Council have already made plans and announced those plans that will help that. It's going to be part of a major development. The If what's uh, proposed actually comes off, it's a, a development in excess of £5 billion sterling. So uh, it's it's going to be a huge regeneration of that part. And it's going to be iconic from what uh, our architect Dan Mice says. Um, you know, it's be the first thing you see as you, as uh, you sail in, 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 into the city on the, on the, on the river Mersey. Wow. That's going to be incredible. And obviously for those of my listeners who don't know Liverpool, I'm from the other side of water. So I know Liverpool yeah. very, very well growing up there really. And Liverpool is a city that's undergone a massive, massive, transformation in the last 10, 15 years with the capital culture and everything like that. But that's sort of been the south end and the central end of the city, the sort of um, Albert Dock area and King's King's Dock area and, the, you know, the centre of the city pushing even up slightly north into sort of Ravertree and the Edge Lane area. About the north end of the city, particularly around by Stanley Dock and round by there and round by Bramley Moor Dock, it's been really, really underdeveloped, doesn't it, really? And that offers a unique opportunity, I think, for the city and for the club to be involved in a really positive regeneration project. Uh, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, it, the analogy is what Manchester City did, you know, in the Eastlands of, of, of Manchester, which was, a, you know, a very deprived area. Uh, lacking investment, lacking infrastructure. And Manchester City have, you know, to their great credit, have massively changed that part of Manchester to the, to the benefit and of, of all the people that live there. And I think, uh, Everton are doing something very, very similar. You know, we are being, we are essentially the first part of a major redevelopment project. I think it's also very important to say one of the things that differentiates Everton's approach to this, perhaps to other clubs, is that we have plans to redevelop Goodison Park, not in the sense of, you know, for example, like West Ham did sell it to a developer who's going to build X number of flats and houses. We've stated in, in, in the documents that are available to us that uh, we're actually going to redevelop uh, the, the plot that Goodison sits on uh, for the benefit of the community. And that means uh, low-cost social housing, it means education facilities, and it means you know, sport and leisure facilities as well, specifically designed to benefit the local communities. So although Everton are moving from their home that they've had since 1892, 127 years, we're actually going to uh, leave a legacy project behind that actually benefits the uh, L4, uh, Liverpool 4 community. I think that's so important. And, you know, that is the L4 community is a community I know very well. I've driven through about hundreds of times on Scotland Road. And you go through there and it is a very, very deprived community. And also the areas around Goodison Park, when you drive through there, are very, very tight and very, very close to the stadium and offer a sort of atmosphere that you don't necessarily get. A, a lot of these new modern stadiums that are very, very distant from sort of their fan base. And yep. Goodison Park is very, very close to where a heck of a lot of Everton's fan base are based. Now, really, to internationalise this, to put these sort of the stadium options that Everton have had sort of into context, really, I would say that for our listeners who are based in America or know the MLS, I would say that the King's Dock option that was sitting around 20 years ago was sort of the CenturyLink field Seattle Sounders sort of option, a major redevelopment about, you know, half a mile 
just outside the city centre. Yeah, right in the heart of the city centre, yeah. Sort yeah. of thing. The other one would be uh, the Kirby option, the Kirby Tesco option. Um, other supermarkets are available, obviously. The Kirby Tesco, Tesco option would have been a sort of Dick's Sporting Goods Fields, we have a Colorado Rapids spray, which <laughs> is slightly further out of the city and would have offered expansion for, you know, building training facilities around by there and everything like that and would have probably offered a lot of land to the club but obviously that that wasn't really adequate for whatever it's needed and would have meant that the club would have moved uh, quite far away from its fan base and then sort of the new option the Bramley Moore Dock option is as you say a little bit like Man City Stadium but in in the same thing I think it could be a lot like the Century Link Stadium where the Seattle Sounders play, where there's a fantastic atmosphere, you know, there's marching bands up to the stadium, there's, you know, I could see Spat Road being shot and you could have marching bands, you could have a very real atmosphere from the city centre because of, you know, it's close enough but far away enough from the city centre that fans can do that, that fans can, you know, and you can create a real sort of carnival atmosphere at the Bramley Moor Dock proposed stadium. Uh, definitely, and, and I think it says it says so much about Everton in terms of you know the type of club that we are, the stature of the club. It says an awful lot about our history. You know, this will be the third major stadium that we've built in the city. We built Anfield, we built Goodison, and now we're building the stadium at, at Bramley, Bramley Moor Dock. And it does everything that none of the, that all of the other alternatives that were put previously uh, could not do. It ticks every single box. It, you know, it, it's going to be it's it's going to be consistent with our heritage. It's going to be consistent with the city's heritage. It's going to be if Dan Mice, the architect, is, you know, is to be believed, and I, I no reason at all to disbelieve him. It's going to take all the positive aspects of Goodison Park, the the historical elements, the atmosphere, the closeness to the pitch, the traditional form of a uh, football stadium. And his objective and his ideas are to apply that in, in, in a modern setting. And I, for one, I, I, I can't wait to see the plans, the, the, even if it's just the early stage renderings. I can't wait to see, um, you know, what's in store for us. And, you know, we're only, we're probably only three seasons away from playing there. It's probably going to be assuming that everything goes to plan 2021, uh, when we kick off in, in, in our new stadium. So. You know, we've got less, probably less than 75 to 80 games left at Goodison. Um, they're going to go by very, very quickly. Indeed, they will. Indeed, they will. And one of the other things I'd say, Man City got their stadium back in, well, it was 2003 when City moved into the stadium. Yep. But they got their stadium in part because of the Commonwealth Games that were held in Manchester in 2002. The City Council bid for the Commonwealth Games. They needed a stadium where they could help the Commonwealth Games. The City Council built the stadium and obviously the government gave money to the City Council to build the stadium to redevelop the area. I mean, what was then known as the City of Manchester Stadium, but now known as the Etihad, was converted a season later into being a football stadium. And I think a similar thing really exists with Bramley Moor Dock. Not to get too bogged down in local politics here, but there's massive, massive potential for Bramley Moor Dock because Liverpool obviously wants to hold, I think it's the 2022 or 2023 Commonwealth Games, don't they? Um, there's the potential to hold the 2022 Games um, now that Durban and South Africa have, uh, have dropped out of the running. Without getting into the politics of it, I think I think this is a complete red herring. I don't. First of all, I don't think Liverpool are going to be awarded the games. Um, I think Birmingham or Manchester are in a far stronger position. Hold on, uh, hold on, hold on. Why not? Why not? Why, why not? Because we're so far behind in the process. We don't have the facilities uh, that will be needed. Uh, there's no idea in terms of where the funding is coming from. You know, Liverpool City Council is. I can understand Joe Anderson, the, the local mayor, wanting the games. I can understand all the reasons for saying the games are going to come to Liverpool. But the harsh reality of it is that Birmingham's better place than, than, than Liverpool to get it. They have a stadium in place. They have funding in place. They have support from central government, none of which Liverpool has. I'd also say that the stadium, uh, the Everton Stadium, 
is going to be a football stadium. It's not going to be a stadium that's built uh, sort of compromised between what's required for an athletic stadium and what's required for a fo- you know a football stadium. Dan Mice, the architect, has already said that we're not going to have a bowl. We're going to have steep-sided stands as close to the pitch as uh, regulations permit. That being the case, we can't fit an athletics track into the stadium. And I think the option, you know, such as with West Ham and the Olympic Stadium, where you have a retractable seating in order to place um, a track in it. I don't think that's a starter in terms of what Dan Mice is proposing and what, in fact, the board of Everton want in terms of their stadium. I don't, I don't envisage the Commonwealth Games being in Liverpool, and I certainly don't envisage athletic, athletic events on Bramley Moor. We've had a great debate about the stadium there, and it's been lovely to discuss it with you, Paul. Finally, bring it back to more current things at Everton. The change of ownership from the club, from Bill Kenwright and his backers to Mashiri and his backers, yep. that seems to have brought about a little bit of a revitalization of Everton, would you say? Total, total. I mean, there's a lot that can be said about um, Bill Kenwright in particular, you know, about him being an Evertonian, about him being a true blue, about him being associated with the club since his childhood. Um, and I wouldn't want to take anything, any of that away from the man. But there's no doubt, and I suspect more as a result of the financial position that the club was in rather than any uh, lack of desire on his part. There's no doubt that the club has um, treaded water. We we have stag- we've stagnated as a club, and as a result, what we found is that we just each year because we've never been able to move forward. Each year we just get in a, a relatively speaking a worse position as our competitors, what I would call actually our peer group, the top you know six or seven clubs in the country, have just moved ahead of us in, in, in every respect. What Mashiri has done, he's not come in and he's not doing an Abramovich. He's not pouring, you know, multiple hundreds of millions into the club. Whether he wants to or not, that's no longer possible from a regulatory point of view. What Mashiri is doing from a sustainable, is sustainable investment. So he's putting investment into the club. He's moving us forward. And I think in terms of the business model, in terms of the amount of investment that he's putting in, it will allow us to compete at the top levels of the Premier League once more. We're not going to have the resources that are available to Manchester United or available to Chelsea, uh, perhaps even available to Liverpool and um, and Tottenham. But nevertheless, under the structure and the types of things that the club is trying to do, we'll be in a far better position uh, to compete moving forward. I don't disagree with you there. Now, the reason I say Mashiri and his backers was because a couple of months ago, one of the other pods on the WFR... WFI franchise called Football Grad, which focuses on Russian football, did a fantastic pod on the links between Osmanov and Mashiri, and I highly recommend our listeners go and check that out. I try and get something put in the show notes about that particular podcast that Manu Vef did, and there are links between Mashiri and Osmanov, who's obviously a backer of Arsenal as well, although not that doesn't have any stake in Everton, apart from the fact that his business, UTS, has recently uh, sponsored Finch Farm, Everton's training ground. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, the business is UC- USM. Um, and yet they've, they've named, uh, they're part of a naming rights deal for uh, Everton's training ground, Finch Farm. Um, I was actually part of that podcast when, when we were talking about the potential for Usmanov to come into Everton uh, either as a shareholder or through some form of direct in, uh, indirect investment through sponsorship, etc. Um, I don't think Usmanov is selling his shares at Arsenal, and I've uh, explained on many occasions all of the reasons for that. It's, a, it's probably a podcast in, in, in itself. I think perhaps we will get we will get more investment in terms of sponsorship and naming right opportunities from the uh, USM holding company that uh, Usmanov uh, is a majority shareholder of and uh, Mashiri himself is a 10% shareholder of but I don't think we'll have any direct um, involvement from Usmanov I think I think I think it's slightly disgenuous to um, Mashiri to suggest that he needs to bring other people in and that he needs the involvement of Usmanov I think this guy can stand on his own two feet and I think this is his investment. You know, he he sold the Arsenal shares 
at a time when had Usmanov wanted to be involved with Everton, he could have very easily sold his shares to uh, Moshiri, not the other, not the other way around. I, I think this is Moshiri's baby. I think he wants to take Everton and do with Everton what uh, he wasn't able to do with um, Arsenal because of uh, Stan Kroenke. Very, very interesting. And obviously, I highly, highly recommend going back. Any Everton fans who are interested in this issue going back and listening to that Football Grab podcast on Mashiri. I certainly found it very, very interesting and very good preparation for this podcast. Paul, where can we find you on social media? And what are you up to at the moment? <laughs> um, you can find me on social media, uh, on Twitter. I'm only on Twitter, I see, the, uh, as the ESK, uh, T-H-E space E-S-K. Um, and I have my own website where I sort of... Uh, put any of my written work which is uh, theesk.org wow fantastic good stuff i'll be sure to check it out it's been a pleasure having you on and i'm very much looking forward to talking about everton in the not so distant future thank you very much ellis thank you very much i'm ellis palmer this has been the wfi epo weekly podcast on everton season so far their planned new stadium and the Mashiri ownership of the club. You can find uh, all WFI's fantastic podcasts on your podcast feed, be it on iTunes, be it on SoundCloud, by typing in WFI. You can also follow the pod at WFI EPL Weekly. We're going to be back very, very soon with some other pods, but for now, thank you very much for joining us.